Well, good morning. Pleasure to be back with you again this week. Looking forward to next week as well. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll be in Luke 17 verses 1 through 6 this morning. Sorry, that's going to be staring me right between the eyes the whole time. Figured I may as well move it. Luke 17, verses 1 through 6. Follow along as I read, please. He, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Bow with me in prayer, would you? Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would be opening the eyes of our hearts, help us to focus our minds, to be attentive to your word. Grant me clarity as I speak this morning. May I be true to your word. Be working in all of our hearts to grant us new and fresh insight to what your word says. As we think about the nature of conflict and the nature of forgiveness and guarding against sin, Lord, help us to, to focus on new ways to apply this passage. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So a few questions for you all. Have you ever been in a situation where you were faced with the difficulty of confronting someone, someone you love or someone you don't know that well, who had sinned against you, someone who had wronged you in some fashion? Or have you ever struggled with the difficulty of forgiving someone, uh, close friends, loved ones, uh, co-workers, who, but you didn't really feel like it? Have you ever struggled with that emotion? Have you ever been on the offending end of sin and needed to confess, repent, and ask for forgiveness and been faced with that in life? Sin is such an inevitable part of our world that um, if you answered yes to those questions, you're human. If you answered no, come talk to me afterwards. We've got some talking to do. It is such an inevitable part of our life. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 1. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. We'll come back to that, but just hone in on that for a moment. When you think back on human history, not even just our own nation, but human history as a whole, from Genesis 1 all the way up to the present day, sin, Genesis 3, up to the present day, forgive me, up to the present day, sin is an ever-present reality. We can't escape that fact. 
World War II and, and, and the nearest history of our nation and of modern times tends to bring that to focus most, or even some of the other wars since then. But when we think about the nature of things like the Holocaust, sin is at the forefront as we dwell on that fact, that historical event. Has anyone here ever heard of Corey Tinboom? Some of you were alive when Corey Tinboom was around. <clears throat> I want to read you part of Corey Tinboom's story where she, she had to deal with forgiveness and in a more radical way than we've probably ever had to deal with. In Corey Tinboom's words, she writes this. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People, people were filing out of the basement room where I, where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was, with the, it was this truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, you're how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? 
And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Now, I wager no one here has ever been in a situation similar to that. And don't worry, I won't leave you hanging for the end of the story. We'll get back to it. But very few of us have to face a situation as difficult as that. But there will come a time in your life when you are confronted with the opportunity to respond in faith to sin. It's inevitable. In light of this inevitability, in light of the inevitability of stumbling blocks entering the church, Jesus lays out here in this passage four responsibilities in response to sin that show the effect of faith in the life of a believer. And you can see him there in the bulletin in front of you. The responsibility first to guard against sin, to rebuke sin, to forgive sinners, and to possess faith. And you could even add a, a fifth one from verses 1 and 2, that we have the responsibility to recognize the inevitability of sin and stumbling blocks. And so let's examine these one at a time, starting first there in, in verses 1 and 2. And just thinking about the inevitability of stumbling blocks entering the church. There will come a time when you are confronted with the opportunity to confront sin, to have to repent of sin, to ask for forgiveness, to extend forgiveness. It is inevitable. Beyond that, it is inevitable even in our own churches, faithful though they are, that stumbling blocks will come. There will be false teachers who rise, even here. There will be false teachers who rise, even in my church at Grace Community. It is inevitable. Sin is everywhere. It's unavoidable. We have responsibilities before the Lord, not only to recognize this fact, but then to respond in guarding against it. But what are these stumbling blocks? How do we understand what these are? The Greek word there is, is scandalon. It's where we get our word for scandal. And don't think like there's a big Fox News network executive and, and there's a big scandal now at Fox. Don't think scandal in that fashion. Think a snare. The original meaning of this word had the idea of a hunter's trap. A snare that had been set with the intentionality of catching somebody in a particular vice. That will arise in our churches. We can look through history and we can try to deny that fact, but that is naive. But look at the next part. Look at the woe in the next phrase. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. While it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, know that God is still fighting for His church. That is our hope. This is scary 
ought to be scary for the person who puts a stumbling block in the way of God's children. Why? This woe is a strong contrast to what just came before, but it's a strong interjection denoting an extreme displeasure. This is Jesus saying that, (laughs) I don't like that. Scandals are going to come. My children will sin due to the teaching of someone who is false. So what does he say? Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Better to die by drowning than to cause a believer to sin. Better to die a horrible, crushing death than to cause a child of God to sin against him. Think about that death for a moment. Have you ever come close to drowning before? The panic that ensues in your own heart. The panic that comes into your mind as you don't know what's going to happen. Have you ever been tossed by the waves in the ocean and not known which way is up and whether or not you're four feet under or ten feet under? This was an execution in the ancient times. Trust the Greeks and the Romans to come up with something particularly gruesome. And this isn't mafia style, put their feet in concrete and drop them in the ocean. This is tied around their neck, send them head first. Into the deepest part. They're going face first into the darkness. They can't see anything. They're all alone. And the weight of the water begins to crush in on them. This isn't the painless sort of I've drowned and fallen asleep that some people say drowning is. This is terrifying. And Jesus is saying, it is better for that to happen to you than for you to cause one of his children to sin. And he's using a play on words here in verses 1 on 2. The stumbling block in verse 1, the scandal on there, the verbal form of that same word is used here. One of these little ones to stumble. It's the same word. It is the verbal form. He's making a direct reference back and necessarily connecting them together. That when that stumbling block comes, it would, would have been better for that person to have died an excruciatingly terrifying death than for them to have caused a child of God to sin. To put it into more modern terms, Fathers, when your daughter brought a boyfriend home, what is the stereotypical response of an American dad? Let me go get my gun and clean that. Just lay it out on the table. You guys better be back by, uh, by ten, 9 o'clock. Right? Fathers have a necessary protective stance over their children. It is the same way with the Heavenly Father. The wrath of a father in protecting his children has very little parallel elsewhere in life. And so our first responsibility, our first responsibility in faith is to guard against sin. And this could even be considered in some respect to be the overarching responsibility we have in regards to sin. Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful passions 
We're told that we're supposed to store up God's Word in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. It is the lifelong duty of a believer to guard against sin. Proverbs 4.23 talks about how it is our duty as wise people of God to guard our hearts because it is where all of life flows from. It is a constant duty. But what does this mean? What does it mean to guard against sin? What does that look like? Well, there's an alertness and an attentiveness that comes with it. You can have the best doctrine in the world, but you can still have false teachers that infiltrate a church. It happened to the early church that had the apostles and false teachers crept in. They addressed them directly. Paul set up churches. and Look what happened to the Galatians. Ephesus was set up. What did he have to warn Timothy of? In 2 Timothy 3, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. They will come in. If the church is not alert to the fact that this will happen, they cannot guard against it. You cannot be attentive and alert to this happening if you deny its reality. There is a stance of alertness that we must have in general as brothers and sisters in Christ as individuals of this corporate body, but you all have the duty as members of this body, I have the duty as a member of Grace Community in Jacksonville to ensure there is a guarding of the Word of God against sin in that body. And same for you here. Brandon holds the responsibility at this point for that here. Your lay leaders hold that responsibility here, but it is also your responsibility as members of this body, as individual members, to guard against the infiltration of sin here. The lay leaders can't see everything. Just by way of illustration, I run an ice cream shop. It's a super easy job, sometimes. It's pretty sweet, but... A couple people got that one. Nice. Uh, But I can't be there all the time. I have to instill in my workers an attentiveness to food safety, to other individual matters of how this shop is supposed to be run, so that when I am not there, their eyes can catch it. It is the same way in the church. It is the individual's responsibility as well as the shepherd's to guard against sin. So there's a constant stance of alertness. Recalling again the Proverbs 4.23 passage, understanding that the heart of man, it, it flows all of life from it. Understanding that that source of life in man, from a Jeremiah 17 perspective, is tainted by sin at the deepest, darkest level. There must be an individual guarding. Not just you guarding this church, but also you guarding you. And so there's a relational and a personal alertness that comes with it. We must beware in both directions. We watch out for those who are our spiritual family and hold them accountable and help them to be strong in their faith and fight against sin and temptation. But we must also beware of our own sinful natures bent towards sin. 
We need to guard also against leading others into sin. Guarding ourselves and guarding brothers and sisters from falling into sin by, by following after false teaching. How, how do we cause others to sin? Obviously, they bear some responsibility before God, ultimately speaking. One commentator put it this way, we, we cause others to sin anytime our actions or attitudes set a bad spiritual example. We do it when our complaining spirit causes other people to be discontent. We do it by speaking evil words that unfairly influence someone else's opinion. We do it by carrying an argument to the point where we provoke an angry response. We do it by enticing someone to commit sexual sin or join us for some juicy gossip. We do it by boasting of our accomplishments or acquisitions in a way that makes people envious or boastful. Of course, they have to take responsibility for their own actions. But woe to us if we make it easier for them to sin or harder for them to be godly. It is bad enough to tempt another person to sin, but to cause another to sin is not merely shameful and sinful. It is worthy of a terrifying death. And in contrast to tempting or causing others to sin, our duty toward one another is to bear one another's burdens. Remember Galatians 6. Part of our duty as believers is to bear one another's burdens, to address sin when needed, to come alongside one another, aid one another by bearing each other's burdens, yet while also taking care not to fall into sin at the same time. This is something that must be done with extreme caution and timidity. Know your heart. Know your own propensities. Guard according to biblical wisdom, biblical commands, and understand that sin comes from your own heart. You are tempted, maybe by something outside of yourself, but that temptation originated in your heart. Have a James 4, 1 through 3 perspective on this. Just listen as I read James 4, 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Disunity, sin, every false idea, every false teaching, every sinful thought originates from your own heart. You are culpable before God for that thought. You are culpable before God for tempting someone else to fall into the same sin you are in. But you are also your own brother's 
keeper. Part of that interpersonal alertness and attentiveness is being a part of each other's lives and being willing to let people be a part of your life so that they can help you guard against sin. How well are you known in this body? How well do you let yourself be known by this body? Is there a member in this church who can look into your life and see when the subtle signs of drift happen? Is there anyone in your life that knows you well enough to know when those subtle signs of sinful drift are beginning to happen? Or are you trying to hide yourself for some form of moralistic therapeutic deism so you feel good before God? Because of the inevitability that sin will enter the church, that stumbling blocks will come, guarding against sin is not the only responsibility we have. Sometimes it must be escalated. Sometimes rebuke, confrontation of sin must happen. And so we have our second responsibility to rebuke sin. What does this mean? What does it mean to stand and rebuke sin? If your brother sins, rebuke him. When you're addressing the sin, there are no exceptions, no excuses. Sin is sin, yes? Sin is a serious affront to God. It must be addressed. If guarding does not happen at the level of the heart, sin will be there. And it must be addressed. Must we address every single sin? Lest you think I'm telling you to be a nag, think of it from the 1 Peter 4 8 perspective. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And also Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So don't be a nag. But there's no excuse for sin. So what's that look like? Got a rubric for you series of questions. When you're thinking on how to rebuke sin, how to confront a sinner without being a nag for you spoke harshly to me there with just a tiny bit of a selfish tone. Rather than being a nag there, Peter is saying overlook in love. But when do you know when a sin is, is too serious to overlook? Here's the rubric. Ask yourself these questions. Is it dishonoring to God? Well, like I just said, sin is sin and all sin dishonors God, right? Let me clarify. All sin dishonors God, but is the name of God at stake due to this sin? 
If the name of God is at stake, it is necessarily dishonoring to him and must be confronted. Is God's name at stake? Is his glory being tainted? Is the act of your brother or your sister such that it would cause others to think less of God? The world doesn't need help doing that. They already have hostility toward Christ, his church, and toward God the Father. Shame on the believer who lives and revels in a sin that does that more. Second question. Is this sin damaging your relationship? Is this, is this sin actively barring, barring you from relating to one another as siblings in Christ? From having a proper discipleship relationship with this person, from having a proper fellowship in the Spirit, a proper unity in the Spirit with this person, then it is something that ought to be addressed. Two more questions. First, is it hurting others? Is it drawing somebody else into the sin such that this other person is being harmed? Including you. And I don't just mean physical harm. Domestic abuse is raging out of control in our society because of a Genesis 3 world. It must be addressed biblically. And yes, that does mean bringing in the authorities. And yes, it does mean taking it seriously. But I'm also talking about the spiritual abuse of false teaching. Whether it's in the public school and your kids go to the public school. I'm not going to start a homeschool versus public school debate. So cool your jets. If you have a child in the public square and they go to a public school, they are under fire constantly. Do not be naive about that. All you have to do is YouTube or Google what the public schools are doing, what the public libraries are doing for Drag Queen Story Hour. And you will be frightened and probably homeschool your kids. That is spiritual harm. Is it hurting the offender is the final question. Is the offender being harmed by their own decision in sin, whether that's spiritual or physical? Then yes, it needs to be confronted. Well, how? How do we work this out? What does this look like in practice? Peacemaker Ministries, I don't believe they're called Peacemaker Ministries anymore, but they have what they call the four G's of conflict resolution. For when you address sin, these are the steps they, they use, the methodology they promote. I use it in counseling on a constant basis when I'm up at Grace Community Church. I'm doing something like three different counseling scenarios right now for relationships where uh, this is very prevalent. Conflict is prevalent in our culture, in our churches, in our relationships on a daily basis. So here are four principles to guide how to 
confront sin. First, understand 1 Corinthians 10.31. Every opportunity in life, every moment, is an opportunity to first glorify God. Understand that every conflict and every sin, when it is confronted, has the opportunity to glorify God. You can dishonor God in the way you confront sin. Did you know that? You can do it in a selfish way, in a self-promoting fashion. But what I am saying is take a 1 Corinthians 10.31 perspective and do it for the glory of God because that is what counts most. Second, work on yourself first. Get the log out of your own eye. Matthew 7. Get the log out of your own eye. Maybe you are the stumbling block. Or maybe you were part of what put the stumbling block in that other person's path. Did you do something that you should not have leading into this? Are you complicit? Third, gently restore. Emphasis on the gently. When you go to confront a brother or a sister, Emphasis on the gently. You are likewise sinners. You may have pulled the log out of your own eye by the Spirit's help, but you are still a sinner. Be gentle with your brothers and sisters. Fourth, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. And this is the main goal of any rebuke, is the reconciliation. Not just between you and the other person if they've sinned against you, but between them and God. Because that is the primary relationship that is at stake. On this also, remember that it is only the Word of God that can properly rebuke sin. When you have God as the glorious purpose, overshadowing, overarching, being the umbrella over what your point and rebuke is, you will use the Word of God to confront sin. It must be that way. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17. What is, what is Scripture good for? For training in righteousness, rebuke, reproof so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So when guarding is no longer an option, having rebuked, what do you do next? Look back at Luke 17 with me. Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now we come to the hardest part. You've been wronged. But we're under obligation. We have responsibility to forgive an offense. What does it mean to forgive do you think the world has a proper understanding of what forgiveness is? When someone says, I'm sorry, oh, I forgive you. No. 
there are divorces predicated on the fact that people have not truly forgiven. Relationships are broken because people do not truly forgive. This is a release from an obligation. A release from a debt. The word indicates a distancing of one thing from another. It implies a moral debt on the part of the offender that is owed to the one offended. And so the offended person then forgives by distancing the debt from the offender. In other words, he takes the price he is owed on himself. Think substitution. Think atonement. The debt we owe God was laid on Christ at the cross. That is the picture of forgiveness. Think Matthew 18. And the debtor before his master. Before the king. And his debt being forgiven. What does forgiveness look like? From a practical standpoint. Again, Peacemaker has has four promises that forgiveness entails. The first promise of forgiveness is that I will not dwell on this incident. When I look somebody in the eyes, when I look a brother in the eyes and I say, I forgive you, this means I will not dwell on this incident. This is not something that I'm going to allow to remain in my mind's eye to cultivate and to fester. Second, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. This isn't something I'm going to use to bar your relationship with other people as a form of vengeance on you for what you did to me. I'm not going to harm your relationships with others because you hurt me. Because I forgive you. Third, I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. There may be an incident that has happened and is a point, in fact, in time. But I've forgiven you and absolved it as if it never happened. Fourth, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Those last two are the hardest ones, aren't they? I'm not going to talk to others about this, and I'm not going to let it hinder our relationship. Biblical reconciliation, biblical forgiveness, puts you in right standing with the person you've forgiven. Sin has consequences, right? It does. Does it take time for trust to rebuild? It does. If someone has wronged you badly, it takes time for trust to rebuild. And there are consequences necessarily to extreme sinful action. I'm not absolving that. I'm not saying it shouldn't be there. That is part of the reconciliation process. The duty of the believer from one to the other when they are sinned against is to forgive. The process of how that works out in the reconciliation could be drawn out. There was a student at the Master's College who stole thousands of dollars worth of audiovisual equipment, media equipment from the school. They got away with it because no one knew who did it. Years later, he came back as a believer and repented. 
he still had to pay the school back the money that he owed because he never ha- he didn't have the equipment anymore. He sold it for drugs, alcohol, whatever it was. He no longer had that equipment. Part of the consequence of him repenting and asking for forgiveness was still to have to repay that. But from a standing perspective, he and the school were not at odds anymore. What about the extent of forgiveness? Talked about what it was, what it looks like practically, but what about the extent of forgiveness? Look at verse 4. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. It's that Jewish concept of completeness, the perfect number. It's that well-rounded number seven. It's the perfect number. Jesus is saying that there is a need, a responsibility to forgive until there is no longer a need to forgive. The rabbinical teaching in Jesus' day was that the duty to forgive a brother was at most three times in any given day. And so Jesus reconfigures the rabbinical rule and says seven. It was unthinkable then, even more so now. In a litigious society like America, in a litigious century like the 21st century, people don't even think about forgiveness first. Right? First response is, I'm going to sue you. Get as much money out of you as I possibly can. You didn't tell me there were nuts in that ice cream. Even though it says it plainly right there, I'm going to sue you because you didn't give me proper warning. And yada, yada. Not had that happen, by the way. In a litigious society, forgiveness doesn't enter the mind until way down the road. At least in the Jewish first century mindset, three times a day was at least decent enough. Jesus is saying, no, even more than that, lavish. Don't stop till it's done. If they keep sinning, keep forgiving. Notice also that Jesus doesn't make a statement concerning the severity of the sin that the person commits. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. There's no mention here of the severity of the sin. Only the duty to forgive it. It is the duty of believers to forgive any and all sin that is committed against us. Jesus is not ambiguous for no reason. Why then must forgiveness be something that is lavish? Turn to Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Look what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Because God's forgiveness is lavish in Christ. Our forgiveness for one another, to one another, 
ought to be just as lavish. No excuses. We are obligated to forgive one another. Understand, this has implications to the idea that even the slightest sin is cause for God's just and eternal wrath. Thus, for him to eradicate any of our sins in forgiveness is unthinkable, let alone all of our sins. Therefore, because God himself has forgiven believers, we are obligated to forgive those who sin against us. MacArthur puts it this way, you are never more like God than when you are forgiving. And you are never less like God than when you are unforgiving. It is the duty of the believer to be Christ-like, to be godly, to act the way God does. To forgive as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Run over to Matthew chapter 18 real quick. Matthew 18, verse 35. Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. He's speaking of the debtor who was forgiven his full debt that he owed, then going and exacting debt without mercy upon someone who owed him something far less. And Jesus is saying, because that man did not forgive something smaller, a smaller offense than what he owed to his own master that he was forgiven for, that man then had to repay his debt in full. To the extent that you know you have been forgiven, the the knowledge you have of the severity of your own sinful heart before an almighty, righteous, holy, glorious God, to the same extent that you know that, you will also forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says that the result of an unforgiving heart a lack of forgiveness in your life necessarily points to not just a lack of forgiveness, but a lack of being forgiven. Let that scare you. Let that sink into your heart. If you withhold forgiveness from a brother or sister in Christ, whether or not they've repented, if you do not stand before them and say, I forgive you, whether they stand there or not, if you do not forgive them in your heart, you will stand before God responsible for that. That is a scary thought. There is no restriction on the severity of sin that Jesus is saying to forgive. Because the smallest sin we have committed in our lives far outweighs the severity of anything any human could do to us. In light of that, look at the comical nature of how the apostles respond. Verse 5 of chapter 17 in Luke. 
the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They recognized their inability to do this. They're walking along. At this point in Luke, they're on their way up to Jerusalem for the final Passover before Jesus is crucified. The disciples don't know all the details of what's going to happen. They know Jesus is telling some dark, having some dark sayings about what's going to happen. He's got some foreboding teachings. And they're just walking along, continuing teaching like normal. Peter's hopping on one foot because the other one's in his mouth. And they're asking about forgiveness. And Jesus says, as many times as someone comes to you and repents, forgive him. And they stop at that moment and go, hold on just a second. I don't have faith for that. I don't have a strong enough will, spiritually speaking, to do that. Help me out here. Increase our faith. Maybe you feel the same way. You're in the same boat as the apostles. But look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's not the amount of faith that you have that matters. It is the existence of it. Do you have faith? Then you can forgive. You can respond to sin rightly in a way that is Christ-like. The power in faith to overcome and resist sin does not come from you. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10.13? God will not allow us to be overcome by sin, but with the temptation, what? will provide a way of escape. Not only is it not in our own power to overcome and resist sin, but it is not in our own power or authority to even rebuke sin. Remember the context of Matthew chapter 18 and the church discipline passage. It's one of the most taken out of context passages ever, just right after Matthew 7. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is giving what it looks like to rebuke sin. But in 19 through 20, verses 19 and 20, he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Not in your power or authority to rebuke sin. If you do it in your power or authority, it is not actually a rebuke of sin so much as a concurrence of it. It is only in the power of Christ, the authority that he has given his children, that sin may be rebuked. God is the only one with the ability to forgive sin. Mark 2. Matthew 19, Ephesians 4. Let that impress on your mind that the need to forgive someone who has offended you does not absolve that person before God. When you are asked for forgiveness by another believer, 
let it put in your mind this picture. You are standing before God now as culpable because you've been offended. But when you forgive that person or not forgive that person, that doesn't do anything to their status before God. Do you understand what I mean by this? Forgiveness in your heart is only a matter of your status between you and God. I can't forgive you of sin before God. Only God has the power to forgive sin that puts people in a right standing before Him. It is our duty only to possess the faith that we are given by the grace of God and to exercise it according to His power and authority. Those who have come to know God know the reprehensibility of sinning against Him. Those who have experienced the sweetness of living in righteousness before God because of discipline know the value of rebuke and correction. Those who have been forgiven much in Christ will naturally forgive much. The most forgiven person is the most forgiving person. Never underestimate the power of God to work through your faith in fulfilling your responsibilities in responding to sin. And realize this, that apart from the gift of faith, which is given to us by the grace of God, which saves us, we have no hope of guarding against sin, properly rebuking sin, or truly forgiving those who sin against us. If you are not a recipient of the grace of God and salvation, which comes by grace through faith, Would you repent this morning? Are you standing rightly before God this morning? I implore you, right now, humble yourself before His throne and in faith be clothed with the righteousness of His Son. If you are a believer and you are currently struggling to grant forgiveness to someone who has sinned against you, I implore you to grant that forgiveness. If you don't know how, if you are struggling with those embroiled thoughts, grab a brother, grab a sister, grab Vey or Brandon, me while I'm here today. Let's talk. There are eternal consequences for living in unforgiveness toward each other. Conclusion to Corey Tinboom's story. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? 
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Beloved, that is a wonderful testimony of the work of God and the heart of one of his beloved children. Will you join in that testimony in living faithfully in response to sin by guarding against it, rebuking it when needed, forgiving sinners, and possessing the faith you need to recognize that it is not in your power to do it on your own? Father, as we stand before your word, guilty sinners, recognizing that we have so deeply offended you that in our very core, we are sinners. There is nothing we can do or say to be deserving of your forgiveness, but you Father, have extended it to us. Convict our hearts when we are unforgiving. Help us to love one another, to love your people in a way that glorifies you and reflects the forgiveness to such a lavish extent that you have extended to us in your Son. In your name we pray. Amen.